Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, friends, good morning. And welcome to worship with us here at Eastside. And a special extra warm welcome to those of you who are guests with us. We are thrilled that you have joined us in this digital format in this rather strange season of social distancing and finding um, alternative ways for us to be together, to be community, to be church. And again, we collectively look forward to the day when we can gather with those of you who have kind of been joining our community through this digital uh, landscape. We look forward to the day when we can gather in body in our sanctuary at Eastside, and we pray towards that day together as a community. But if you are a guest with us, it may be helpful for you to know that throughout the summer, we have decided to journey into a teaching series that we have named Eunoia. And Eunoia is this ancient Greek word that one of the translations can be simply beautiful thinking, eunoia. In this season, we as a community have been walking together, asking what it looks like for us as a people of faith, as followers of the Christ, of people seeking to be faithful to the call of Christianity at its best. What does it look like for our thinking, for, for our minds, for what's going on, going on inside of us to experience transformation and to experience newness and to be molded and shaped in the way that, you seek, that God seeks for us to be molded and shaped? Because what we believe is that, the, that our thinking ultimately lives its way into our feeling, our hearts, our emotional realities. And our emotional centers ultimately live their way into what we do and how we are in the world. So this morning, we continue on this journey. We've been entering into this Eunoia journey by looking at what the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 names as the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit-enlivened life ought to be evidenced by these fruits that Paul speaks to. And to this point, we've We've walked through love, joy, peace, and through patience. And this morning, we turn our hearts and turn our attentions and our minds towards the spiritual fruit that Paul describes as kindness. And before I read my text, um, as you can see, my pulpit has decided to throw me a curveball and turn into a stool. So I'm going to raise my pulpit back up real quick, and then we're going to read the text together. And I might as well talk to you while I'm doing this. Um, the text that we're going to be exploring together actually comes from what our kids are looking at this morning in, the, in kids' worship, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan from the Gospel of Luke. And as I was thinking about kindness, it occurred to me that there were a plethora of texts that I could explore. But when I saw that our kids were going to be reflecting on the Good Samaritan, I figured, hey, let's all do it together. So this morning, friends, I invite you to listen for the Word of God from the Gospel of Luke. We'll begin um, reading in verse 25 of chapter 10. 
Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, well, what's, what's written in the law? What do you read there? The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, with all your strength, with all of your mind. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Go, do this, and you'll live. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, he continued to press into Jesus and asked him the additional question, and who is my neighbor? To which Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers. The robbers stripped him, they beat him, they went away, and they left him for half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and he saw the man who had been beaten. But he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he came and saw the man who had been beaten and left for dead, he too passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near the man. And when he saw the man, he was moved with pity. The Samaritan went to the man and he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. The Samaritan put the beaten, bruised, broken man on the back of his own animal. Then he proceeded to take him to the nearest inn to take care of him. The Samaritan spent the night with the man and then the next day gave the innkeeper two days wages, two denarii, and said, take care of him while I am gone. When I come back, I will repay you whatever additional you needed to spend. Then Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber, robbers. And the lawyer replied, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go, do likewise. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God, thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy and gracious God, on this on this warm July morning, God, as we have yet again gathered in your name, I pray, Lord, that these words that I have prepared might indeed be your word for your people in this time. God, I ask that you would speak through them and where will most certainly be necessary that you will speak in spite of me. And I pray, God, that as I preach the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts spread across this globe in this time would indeed be found good, right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, who is our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our savior. All of this we pray in the strong name of Jesus the Christ, our Lord. And everyone typed, amen. Well, as I was reflecting on our lawyer this morning, 
throughout this past week, a question kept coming into my mind because our lawyer likes to ask questions, but I had one of my own that, that for whatever reason kept coming into my mind as I reflected on this story. And it's simply the question that maybe you have asked yourself before, maybe you've asked yourself already today. Am I good? Am I good? And of course, it occurs to me that depending on who I ask the question to, whether it be my wife who has known me for a very long time or my parents who've known me for even longer or someone from another sphere of my life, the answers I might get to that question will be different depending on how much time people have had to relate to me, to live with me, how much history there is. Am I good? But I think this question cuts through and kind of gets to the bigger picture, the bigger question that our lawyer this morning is seeking to get at. He begins by asking a question about how he might inherit eternal life. And regardless of what he has in his own mind and heart regarding eternal life, the question then moves to who is my neighbor? It seems that Jesus, in this interchange this morning, is connecting the idea of living an eternal kind of life with this idea of loving one's neighbor. I think our lawyer is really asking, am I good? And it's a hard question for us to ask at any point in our lives because it forces us to kind of look deeply, look inward. What do we think about ourselves, about our own behavior, about our own way of relating to those people in our lives, to our world? And, and we might honestly have preferred that Jesus would have utilized the parable in this exchange with this questioning lawyer that was a little less potent, a little less uh, intense, because Jesus really doesn't pull any punches when he moves into this story. It's a parable that exemplifies neighborliness and honestly, multiple layers of massive inconvenience and sacrifice. These three Jewish men and one Samaritan. The hero in the story is willing to disrupt their plans and get their hands dirty with a stranger to put a beaten, bloodied stranger on their living vehicle, their animal of transportation, take them to an inn, spend the night with them in an inn, then give money the next day to the innkeeper and then promise to come back and to make up for whatever is still needed. This is where Jesus goes when the man asks the question, who is my neighbor? And in the story, Jesus really, he doesn't really give any lip service to what we kind of in our modern world might, might think of as sort of our day-to-day -day charitable sensibilities, right? Giving some money to the, the person at the, the exit off 20 who's asking for help, maybe Maybe we had a, some extra time for lunch and we were able to take one of our friends who's experiencing homelessness with us to get some food. Maybe giving to one of our favorite charitable organizations. 
maybe giving time or service time to something, but, but Jesus doesn't name any of these or use any of these as examples in the text in response to the lawyer when it comes to his question, who is my neighbor? Instead, he talks about a guy who stays with a stranger who's been beaten up throughout the night. Maybe it was dark by the time that they arrived at the, at the hotel at the inn, and maybe he stays with him just to make sure he doesn't die in his sleep. And then cares enough to get, leave money with the innkeeper and says he'll be back to make good whatever extra was spent. This is a challenging story, and sometimes when we've heard these stories over and over and over and over again, if we grew up in the church or grew up around Christianity, they can lose a bit of their edge. But this text, this story's gnarly. And it's all encompassed within this big conversation about eternal life and who the heck is my neighbor? Who am I responsible for? And I think what Jesus is doing with this parable is he's intricately connecting the idea of living an eternal kind of life and how you answer the question, who is my neighbor, and then what you do with the answer to that question with how you live in the world. Am I good? Am I living an eternal kind of life right now? Shucks. Am I a good neighbor? We come this morning to the spiritual fruit of kindness. I think there's something really profound about thinking about kindness against the backdrop of the story of the Samaritan and the beaten man. Because I think if we're honest, kindness, many of us don't have a, a robustly Christian understanding of this word. I'm going to show how old I am here, but it occurred to me, I kept thinking of the phrase as I was working on the message this week, be kind, rewind. And if you know what comes with that, then you know where it comes from and you know what technology it is rooted to. But my children, I don't know that the word rewind means anything to them. They say hit the back button on the DVD or the streaming of the movie, but be kind, rewind. But I think even the phrase, if you remember it from the video rental world back when Blockbuster was a thing, rewinding your, your videotape before you return it to the rental store, that's not really kindness, that's just obligation. You're doing what you're being asked to do. You're, you're kind of living into the, to the understanding of renting the movie. Rewind it. That's just what you should do. But I think kindness is something different. It's something more. I think a lot of us tend to associate the word niceness with the word kindness. I mean, maybe it would be nice of us to rewind the tape and to hand it back so that it's less work on the other end. But is it kind? We say things like, so-and-so is a nice person, or, oh, you look really nice today. Which you all do, by the way, look really nice today. Or for the parents, child of mine, please be nice to your sibling in the car. Or you maybe you choose to attempt to be nicer to that person at work who is just, <sighs> there are no words. 
In our world today, even among practicing Christians, we often use the words nice and kind, niceness and kindness sort of interchangeably. But I think as we observe Jesus and his behavior in the gospel and the biblical depiction of kindness, I think it's kind of problematic to associate these two words really at all because Jesus, if we're serious about how he's de described in the text, he's not very good at niceties or really being nice at all. Jesus is this intense, rather direct, uh, prophetic person who over and over again, he tells the truth when he delivers a message. And oftentimes his message is both a message that would be difficult to be the deliverer and would be difficult to be on the receiving end of it. Remember, this is Jesus who at one point calls Peter, who he would build the whole church on, Satan. Jesus was not necessarily nice. He had a tendency to simply name reality as it actually was, and he was willing to be the bearer of a word that was sometimes probably hard for him to say and probably hard for those who were listening to hear. And sometimes he comes off harsh, and sometimes truth-tellers come off harsh. But sometimes it is just the case that the kindest thing one human could do for another human is to actually look them in the eye and tell them not a nicety, not a nice thing, but to tell them the truth. Because the truth can save. Truth can set us free. The truth can, if we accept it and let it sink deeply into our being, allow us to begin the work of changing our thinking, changing our feeling, changing our being, changing the kind of people who we are out in the world. And if we know someone who just, they just kind of habitually behave as kind of a terrible person, but it's this person that we're pretty sure is sort of blissfully aware, unaware, excuse me, of the way that they behave. Some of you, your minds may be going to Michael Scott's character in The Office. Maybe the nice thing would be to sort of placate them, to work around them, to not make a fuss, to just put up with them and not be mean to them until your life either moves you on or their life moves them on. That might be the nice thing to do. But is it the loving thing? Is it the kind thing? Or would the kind thing be to find some way, some time, some moment to have a real heart-to-heart -heart conversation with that human being whose behavior is super problematic and who you know is ultimately not just harming people around them, but is, but is doing harm to their own life, their own being, their own future? Would not the loving thing be to have a truth conversation with them, knowing that it's going to exhaust you, and knowing that it's going to be hard for them to hear, and knowing that things might not be okay between the two of you ever again, but also knowing that maybe, maybe that conversation could plant a seed or could open them up to something they need to hear so that they might begin to change and to begin to be the person that God dreams that they might be. Maybe you could be a part a person who plays a role in God's work in that person's life. That's certainly what we see the Christ doing. He makes very few people happy. He challenges almost everybody to become the kind of people that he believes God is calling them to be. 
I think niceness sometimes, it can, it can really just be kind of a euphemism. And we all know the, the phrase, oh, bless your heart, and what that really means. But even if we go further back than Jesus and we go and dig into the Old Testament, the God of the Hebrew scriptures is not a nice God per se. No, we encounter a God who is the creator, who is the parent, who is love, his goodness, has this passionate, jealous care and concern for, for every human being, for creation. And, and over and over, the Hebrew scriptures across, across books and across time speak of God's chesed, a Hebrew word that often gets translated as God's loving kindness, as God's compassion. We might think of it as God's God's positive, hopeful bent towards creation, towards humans. We might think of it in terms of lavish grace, of favor. We might think of it in terms of a God whose love is so great for creation that God really, really wants us to do the right thing. Not because there's punishment to pay on the other side, but because God wants what's best for us. God knows, God can see. The scriptures portray a God who has this deep, saturated love for humanity and a humanity that even when we screw up individually or collectively, the God continues with God's chesed to come back into our stories, into our lives because God continues to have the best interests, our best interests inside of God's own heart. In the scriptures, they speak of all of it being rooted and grounded in this limitless reality that we speak of as the love of God, this unmeasurable, unfathomable depth that has no end, this love that is always pouring forth, is always generating, is always more. And I would argue that through the witness of the New Testament, we can see that one of love's most powerful manifestations, because we believe that all the fruits of the Spirit are in some way a manifestation of that love through us in the world, but one of love's most powerful forms, I believe, is kindness. And I would argue that dispositions of kindness always begin with the best interest of the other person. Acts of kindness, attitudes of kindness, orientations of kindness, they always operate with the best interests of those they're serving for the other human. Which means that there's no, no kindness without love. Which means that God's hesed is tied back, is related to God's overflowing nature of love. It's made manifest in Kindness, and in our lives, kindness is made manifest by a heart of love. And I would argue that kindness is really important to the authentic Christian life as lived openly and lived as transparently and as, as thoroughly as possible. So I think that niceness, at least in our contemporary culture, is often a diversion or it's kind of an attempt to not engage someone. Oftentimes, niceties, they sort of get us off the hook. They get us off the phone. They might get us out of an awkward conversation. They might distract 
by entering a nicety into a interaction. But kindness is so different, right? It digs down. It puts a stake in the ground. Kindness looks the other person in the eye. And in love and in true concern, in true care for the other human, in care for the other human's whole life, their future, their reality, kindness, it makes itself manifest and oftentimes in words that come from a place of love and that are speaking to a person in a way that can help shape them and form them, that can help them become better, more whole, more of who God is calling and believes that they could be. But kindness requires our willingness to let our love become manifest in this way for other human beings. And niceties are way easier. It's way easier to be nice. It's a lot quicker too. Digging down, digging deep, putting a stake in the ground with another human being and having real heart-to-heart, honest, true conversation, that's hard, exhausting, investing work. And it doesn't always turn out, at least in a way that, that seems apparent, well for the bearer, right? We know where the, the story of Holy Week takes us with Jesus. But as I reflected on, on a sort of nice versus kind um, comparison, comparison, I think that may be why Jesus chooses in this instance with this lawyer in this Jewish crowd to use this, frankly, incendiary, inciting, and scandalous, provocative parable. This is one of his most scandalous of all of his parables. There's no way around it. Think about it. We have a Jewish man who's going down from Jerusalem, which means he's been in Jerusalem and he's leaving the holy city on the road to Jericho, probably heading home. The implication being that if he lives in Jericho, he was probably in Jerusalem to be at the temple offering some sort of religious um, practice for his faith. And now he's headed back home where he is mugged and his belongings are stolen. And then Jesus goes on to say, and then a priest comes down from Jerusalem. Now, if you put two and two together, Jesus is essentially saying it's very possible that the two of them were together in the temple at the same time, worshiping. And then the priest comes, seeing the man beaten on the side of the road, passes by on the other side. But thanks be to goodness, after the priest doesn't live up to the challenge of embodying Torah, we're told that a Levite, a Levite comes, certainly a Levite. These people who, whose lives are meant to be put on display as sort of the, the example of the life fully devoted to God, they're not even, we're not, we're not even uh, a, uh, allowed to eat grapes, let alone wine, because they didn't want to have any connection to what could be fermented. Certainly the Levite will come by and do the right thing. And of course, Jesus tells us the Levite too passes by on the other side. And everybody in the crowd at this point is going to be going, where is he going with this story? A priest and a Levite have both passed by. This guy's gotten beat up on his road home. But what Jesus is doing is he's setting up the whole question of who is my neighbor? Because this man on the side of the road would have been quite the literal neighbor 
probably to the priest and the Levite. They were all headed in the same direction. Maybe they all lived in Jerusalem. Maybe this man was an actual, like, next-door neighbor to the priest on one side and the Levite on the other. Maybe that's what Jesus is, is trying to get across to the crowd. Who was my neighbor? That was their neighbor on the side of the road. But then Jesus takes a story down an unseen, unforeseen path and one that's kind of like pouring salt on an open wound when he utters the word Samaritan. Now notice when the, the lawyer at the end of the text gets asked who was the neighbor, he won't even utter the, the word Samaritan because Jewish people and Samaritans, they, they had that much disdain and hatred towards one another that the Jewish man in the story wouldn't even say the word but Jesus has a Samaritan come along, and the Samaritan is the one who embodies Torah, who does the right thing, who stops and not only helps the man, but helps him above and above and above and above and beyond. And a Samaritan is helping a Jew. And let's not forget that the Samaritan boundary was to the north of the Jewish boundary, which meant they were what? National Neighbors. Who's my neighbor? Depends on how you want to draw up the map. Lawyer friend. Let me tell you a story that kind of complicates the whole question. I wonder if this story would be a little bit like white Americans reading Frederick Douglass's famous speech on the 4th of July the speech titled, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? If you're, no, if you're a white American in this country and you've never taken the time to read this speech, to meditate on it, to let it dig down deep in you and to have an impact on you, to carve, to carve some new places in your heart and spirit and your mind, to reshape some of your thinking, if you've never read this speech, not only should you, but I would, I would argue that as a follower of the Christ and also a citizen of this country, you have an obligation to. You have to read it. You have to hear it. And it's not a nice speech. It's not a good Southern speech that makes the audience feel good about what's being said. No, it's, it's a poignant speech, and Douglas speaks the truth, and he's he speaks words that need to be said. This is pre-Civil War, pre-emancipation. And he speaks, I would argue, from a place of love. In his words, you can hear both a deep and a rich and a passionate love for his currently enslaved siblings in our country. And at the same time, you can hear and, and see and experience his passion for those who are for those who are actively engaged as slaveholders and those who are, if not actively engaged in holding slaves, are not actively engaging the issue of slavery in the country. You can hear that Douglas, he has love for both people. And I think what Douglas knew was the truth that slavery not only was doing insanely horrific harm to those who were being enslaved, but at the same time it was doing unimaginable destruction and harm to the souls, to the hearts of the slaveholders themselves. It was dehumanizing the entire country on both sides. Douglas knew that 
enslaving another fellow human, it came at a, a cost that was way too high to pay. And maybe, sure, people's bottom lines had some impact, but what about what, what holding slaves was doing to the very nature of the soul of our country, to the souls of the human beings in this place? I think Douglas knew that slavery, it was kind of like a poison to the human heart. It was insidious. And I think Douglas spoke truth to anyone who would hear, and I think he was speaking from a place of love because he believed that love would lead to freedom, and freedom could lead to a place where broken and poisoned hearts could begin the process of recovery, could begin to be healed where those who had done the wrong could begin the process of making amends, and in the process of making amends, healing both former slave and former slaveholder. See, none of this, friends, is nice. None of this is nice. Truth is not nice. But love, love is kind. And Douglas was speaking kindness because kindness always goes out into the world for the good of the receiver, for the best interest of the receiver. And if the truth is that, that being free, whether being free from the reality of being an oppressor myself or being free from being oppressed is God's, is God's word for the world and for the human race, then leading us to a place of freedom is leading us from a place of love into a place of kindness. But we're all enslaved by all kinds of stuff, and a lot of the times in our day-to-day -day lives, we don't even see it, and we need someone else to speak it to us. We need someone else, a fellow sibling, to have the courage to sit down and to say, I don't think you see this, but I need you to see this because I love you. Jesus, in our story this morning, makes a hero out of a Samaritan in front of a Jewish audience who would have considered this to be preposterous. This would have been scandalous. This could have gotten Jesus killed on the spot. The lawyer wouldn't even say the word Samaritan at the end of the text. Generations of hatred between these two tribes, these warring nations. The Samaritans believed to be half-bloods by the Jews. The Samaritans who worshiped supposedly the same God as the Jews, but in a different way, on a different mountain, only reading the first five books of the Old Testament, religious division, ethnic division, political tribal division. Jesus tells a story that would have incited just incredible visceral reactions from the people who were listening. To make a Samaritan the hero of the story would have been scandalous. I mean, why, why does Jesus push so hard? I think it's because we're talking about living the eternal kind of life and who is my neighbor? Two really big, important questions for us as people of the Christ to be asking. Are we living the eternal kingdom kind of life right now? And who do you think is your neighbor? Who is your responsibility? Do you dice it up and chop it, chop it up into little segments and say, well, this group is my responsibility, but that group, I've been told I don't have to worry about them. I think Jesus is calling, excuse me, but BS on the entire thing. I think his point is that humanity, we are our neighbors. 
Our globe has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller as technology has gotten more and more, some would argue, invasive. But the reality is, is that we are not far from anyone on this planet at any given moment. And the question, who am I obliged? Who do I have to care about? That's not a question that we're to be asking. Jesus doesn't seem to be very interested in it to the point where he's willing to go so far as to make the despised Samaritan the star of the story, the only one in the text who actually embodies Torah, embodies God's command to love our neighbors as ourselves. Am I kind? Are you kind? Do we love humans as much as God does? Are we trying? Do we have hate in our hearts? Do we have apathy in our hearts? Do we have a sense of self-justification that we're not responsible for them in our hearts? Are there external identifying factors that make us more apt to want to be in community with one human or another? I think the story of the Good Samaritan and the Christ in our text this morning says, y'all get over yourselves. Your schemes that place some people in and other people out, that make some people worthy of care and other people not. It's all, it's all dust. It's not real. It's just made up. Because humans are humans and we are loved because God loves us. And God is our parent which means that we as followers of the Christ have to ask ourselves, do we love? Are we trying to be good by embodying that love? Are we, are we starting at the starting point, which is I at least want God to be better, to be different, to be more. I think a text like this reminds us that there can be hypocritical Christians and there can be virtual, virtuous atheists. There can be nasty agnostics and Christ-like people of other faith traditions. And of course, there's selfish, self-serving politicians on both sides of every aisle and every corner of this planet. And there's also people seeking to do the right thing by entering into the political scheme, seeking that to be a means through which they can be kind to humanity. So maybe this morning you find yourself in a place where you say, okay, yeah, I, I wanna be kind. But I don't know if I'm there yet. Or maybe you've been trying. A couple words in closing. A desire is the right place to start. And just like the kindness, the chesed, the compassion of God comes from the heart of God, which is love, we begin by praying for and seeking to have hearts of love. Hearts that are full of love. And an easy place to start is just to begin praying, to begin asking God to transform you from the inside out, to grow your heart. I remember the, the image of the Grinch's heart just growing and growing and growing so it can contain more and more and more. As crass of, analogies, of an analogy as that may be, it's kind of what we're aiming for. 
And then kindness is taking that love that God is pouring into us and it's making it manifest out in the real world for the real people with whom we are in community with and in and for people that we're never gonna meet on this side of eternity. Because the eternal kind of life lived right now is the life that is in tune and in, and in sync with the eternal, which is God. And that is a reality lived out that doesn't ask the question, who's my neighbor? It asks the question, God, which neighbor next? Which neighbor next? What's the next right thing that you're calling me to do? What's the next kind thing that you want to use me to do to make your love manifest in this world? So friends, people of God, people of East Side, may we be kind. Amen? Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar, and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's East Side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.